this morning, I am going to talk to you about preferring others and particularly how we prefer others within our church community. Now, I have a very amateur interest in linguistics. I love etymology, which is how words came into being, and also how different languages have words to describe concepts that we don't have singular words for in English. Now, we talk a lot about community, referring to both our local community, like Lindsay was talking about earlier, um, and also the church community. We also use this word fellowship um, when talking about our close relationships with other Christians. But what does this actually mean? If we look at the dictionary definitions for community, we generally get things like a group of people living in the same place or having a particular characteristic, I'll put my teeth back in, in common. Fellowship is described as friendly association, especially with people who share one's interests. So yes, to some extent, these do describe what we have here at church on one level. But here is where our human lexicon is lacking. God calls us to so much more than just being with people we share a common interest or characteristic with. What marks our community out different to others? It's not just about doing good things, as there are plenty of communities out there with genuine hearts for doing really good things. So how did Jesus model community and how does that inform how we live in community with each other in the church today? The actual word community itself doesn't really feature in the Bible, but we do see this word fellowship. And the Greek word for that is translated as koinonia. I can't guarantee that's pronounced correctly, but we'll go with koinonia, which um, is to be in fellowship or communion. And where do we get the English word community from? Yeah, it's not a big stretch. We get it from communion. In the New Testament, fellowship is much deeper than just associating and hanging out with other Christians. Koinonia not only describes this fellowship with other Christians, but with God himself. It also comes from a root word that means partner, companion, and also this um, concept of sharing life possessions, experiences, sharing oneself. It is also used to convey generosity. All of this gives us clues about what this fellowship, this kingdom community is meant to look like. When we believe in the gospel, that Jesus is king and the kingdom of God is here, we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And not only are we related to God the Father and the Son, but by his spirit, we are intrinsically connected to each other. Now, I love an analogy. Um, I find it helpful to relate um, a more abstract concept to something a bit more tangible. However, having listened to Kenny speak a while back on the Holy Spirit and uh, analogies used for the Holy Spirit, I'm a little bit wary now <laughs> about using analogies. However, I am borrowing this one from Dr. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, so I think it's probably kosher. So... I've got a prop, so you can tell I'm used to uh, writing children's lessons. <laughs> we love an object lesson. So, ta-da. Here is a bunch of grapes. Yes, I brought an actual bunch of grapes. I just didn't think a picture was going to quite do it justice. 
Um, so our bunch of grapes here is representing our church community. We have all these little bunches here. Um, they are all connected in some way to the vine. And through the vine, they are all connected to each other. Each grape is an individual, but all... Um, sorry, I've lost my place. Uh, they're all fed by the same vine. We have smaller groups that are closer together, but we are still all connected. If you think of humans as the grapes, when uh, we are connected to the vine, we are alive and supported. If we are shaken, there we go, I was really hoping that something wasn't gonna fall off there, because that would have ruined my analogy. Uh, when we're shaken, we should stay together. If we have grapes not connected to the vine, they can easily roll away. Yeah, there you go, Alistair. See, can't complain, I don't feed you enough. <laughs> so, although we are all created individually, we are all intrinsically linked by God. We will always have other people that we are closer to in our little bunch, and it's not reasonable to expect to be best friends with everybody. But it is important to remember that as a member of the church, we are related, not separated. So, if something is God-designed and we want to know what it should look like, our best bet is always to look at how it was lived out in the real world by God himself as God the Son, Jesus. So, what did Jesus' community look like? Now, Jesus was a bit of a rebel. He hung out with people that others considered to be undesirable. In Matthew 9, we see the call of Jesus' disciple, Matthew, the tax collector. So, we, we know that um, tax collectors were not very popular. But let's not underestimate just how unpopular they were. So basically, the Roman Empire was the occupying force in Israel at the time, and therefore were not popular with the Jews. The Romans would employ local Jews to collect the taxes, thinking that would be a bit more palatable. But what happened was that these tax collectors were seen as collaborators with the enemy. They weren't given a salary as such, but instead expected to add a service charge and take a cut out of the taxes. So, not only were they working for the enemy, but they were ripping off their fellow Jews as well. Others questioned why Jesus was eating with tax collectors and other sinners. His response, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those that are ill. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus' community was full of broken people, of sinners. His community was a real mix. He had uh, both educated and uneducated, hotheads, introverts, those who were previously considered pious and those considered sinners. No one was off limits to Jesus. Jesus set the greatest example of putting others first. In all situations, Jesus demonstrated love first. There are so many examples. I would literally be here all day going through them. Um, he healed the sick, fed the hungry. He respected and valued women and children, which was quite a big thing at the time. There, um, I think about that woman who was caught in adultery. I mean, she was guilty. She was 
caught in the act. But his first reaction is to love her, not to judge her. He always loved first. He also demonstrates service. In John 13, we see Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. Now, in Jewish culture, the uh, washing of guests' feet was too lowly, even for a Jewish slave. This job was only appropriate for a Gentile slave, so non-Jew slaves. Basically, the lowest of the low. Occasionally, disciples would do this for their teacher as a sign of devotion, but here, Jesus completely flips it. He is the teacher, showing his devotion to his followers, taking on the form of the lowliest slave, even although he is the greatest authority on earth. He loves and he serves. In Mark 10, the disciples, James and John, asked Jesus if they can sit either side of him in glory. The other disciples are raging. Uh, because of the request itself or because they didn't have the idea first? I'm not sure. Jesus replies in verse 42, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. Again, Jesus talks about flipping authority on its head, but also reveals the sacrifice he is going to make. He laid down his life when he didn't deserve to die. John 15, 13 says, no one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Not only did Jesus lay down his life for his friends, but for all humanity, people who hate him as well as people who love him. He sets the ultimate example of sacrificial love. Jesus loved others above himself. He served others above himself and he sacrificed himself above all others. So Jesus set this legacy that was taught to and observed by his followers. And the New Testament is full of instruction for preferring others over ourselves. But where do we start? So let's start with love. In John 13, 34, Jesus says, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. Also in John in 15, 12, he says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Again, in verse 17 of the same chapter, this is my command, love each other. In Matthew 22, Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? His answer, exactly, Georgia. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. God, others. Not God, yourself, others. Not God, your family, the people you like, then others. God, others. Everything we read in the Bible should be read through the lens of how, do this, how does this help me love God 
And how does it help me love others? The fact that this is repeated so many times shows us the significance of what Jesus is saying. It's not a throwaway comment, but a command that we need to be reminded of again and again. In English, the word love is quite passive. You fall in love, you love your partner, but you also love chocolate. It lacks the intentionality of the Greek agape love that Jesus is talking about. That love is sacrificial and it is a choice to seek out the well-being of one another. In Romans 12, Paul walks us through what this agape love looks like in action. I'm going to read the whole passage just now, but we'll be dipping in and out of it as we go along. So Romans 12, we're starting at verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of a low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I'm just going to quickly clarify something this uh, in case anyone's kind of stumbling over it, this heaping burning coals on head. We're not actually putting burning coals on anybody's head. Um, it's an it's a Old Testament metaphor for shame. So don't worry, we're not putting coals on anyone's head. We're not condoning that. <laughs> so if we start in verse nine, love must be sincere. Or as some other translations put it, genuine, without hypocrisy, or in the New Living Translation, it says, don't just pretend to love others, really love them. That got me a bit. I was like, oh, yeah, really. Don't just pretend, really love them. Verse 10 says, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Here again, we see that intentionality. To be devoted to something is to give all or most of one's time and resources to it. When we honor someone, we give them respect. And Paul is instructing us to do that for others, not ourselves. Our worldly view of hierarchy has leaders sitting in a place of honor, but Jesus flips this on, his, on its head. Living in the kingdom honors the lowly and humbles the proud. Our leaders in Falkirk Vineyard are perfect examples of servant leaders. You'll find, <laughs> why are you laughing? <laughs> you obviously can't take a compliment. <laughs> Uh, you'll find our pastors um, setting up chairs, helping in kids' church, sat at the back on the sound desk. We are 
all called to serve each other and our church community. And Nikki did an amazing sermon on everyone gets to play a couple of weeks ago, um, which just expands on that perfectly. There is no one too important or too unimportant. In Mark 10, 45, it says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as ransom for many. Serving is sacrificial, and that means it's not going to be easy. If you're a regular member of this church and you're not serving this community in some way, why? Are you putting your needs, wants, and ambitions first, or others? 1 John 3, 18 says, Let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. To serve is to act out of love. Jesus served people by attending to their physical needs as well as their spiritual. And in James 2, we read about faith and deeds. In verse 16, it says, if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Faith without action is dead. In the same vein, in verse 13 of the Romans 12 passage, um, it tells us to be practical, to share with those in need and to practice hospitality. Prayers are great, but we are also called to love practically and address physical needs as well as spiritual. So further on, in verse 16, we see, do not be proud, but willing to associate with people of a lower position. Paul is very clear that there is no place for hierarchy. He saw it modeled by Jesus for himself, as we saw in that passage in John where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. In James chapter 2, we have a warning about favoritism. It says, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated again among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? There is no place in a kingdom community for discrimination. In Galatians 3.28, we see that there is no longer Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus advocated for women and children, the poor and the foreigners of the land, and so should we. We should be cultivating an open and welcoming community for anybody, regardless of gender, ethnicity, social standing, mental or physical ability. I used the uh, bunch of grapes analogy earlier, but in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul uses the human body to illustrate those belonging to the kingdom of God. And we see a few passages where he uses the body as an example of the body of Christ. He talks about how we are all different parts of the body. In verse 17, it says, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? Now, my profession involves working with the human body, and I'm not going to lie. The thought of a giant human-sized eye or a giant human-sized ear 
gives me the book. <laughs> or the English translation of that is, makes me feel a little bit unwell. Uh, thankfully, the body is made of all different parts, and just as we are all created differently to have different purposes, when the body works as God intended, each part works in harmony with itself. In verses 25 to 26 of the same passage, it says, there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Back in the Romans passage, we have rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, live in harmony with one another. Living in harmony means sharing in the highs and lows of each other's journeys. Sometimes the historical, cultural context we find in the Bible is quite different to today's. In the Greco-Roman context that this was written in, philosophers of the time associated virtue with putting yourselves first. There was a deliberate lack of involvement with others and you basically just kept yourself out of other people's business. And I don't know about you, but I feel like that actually echoes our current culture of sort of individualism pretty well. Paul also summarizes this nicely in his letter to the Philippians. It's, uh, it's kind of like he thought it was quite important and felt the need to, you know, repeat it a few times. So it says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others." Now, this doesn't mean we all have to be the same. We already know that God created and values us as individuals. But it's about the single-minded pursuit of harmonious relationships with each other. So, back in Romans, I told you we were going to be back and forth quite a bit. Back in Romans, verse 18 and 19 says, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge out, and I will repay, says the Lord. I talked earlier about how we are all related through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Now, just because you're related to someone doesn't mean your relationship is automatically going to be easy. Sometimes our toughest relationships are with people that we're related to. We will undoubtedly find ourselves at odds with the behavior or thoughts of others. There are lots of ideas that we can hold very tightly to. For some, it's maybe politics, parenting styles, church styles even. But if those things are becoming an insurmountable barrier to loving others, then I'm sorry, but those things have become your idols. Remember the greatest commandment? God first, then others. We already talked about the disciple Matthew, the tax collector. 
In Jesus's community, we also had Simon, known as Simon the Zealot. Now, we don't know exactly why he was called Simon the Zealot, but at the time, the Zealots were a Jewish faction who were aggressive and even violent um, opponents of the Romans, and especially despised Jews who collaborated with them. So you couldn't actually pick two people from more opposite ends of the political spectrum. Yet, they were in community together as part of Jesus' disciples. Our differences pale into significance when we are united in Christ and put love before all else. Now, I just want to clarify, loving others does not mean that we therefore agree with them or that we condone or tolerate sinful behavior or wrong attitudes. In verse nine of Romans, it says, hate what is evil and cling to what is good. The kingdom is not yet fulfilled and as such, there's still sin. Unfortunately, the devil will try and work in our community and we must be vigilant. There have been too many stories recently of respected leaders of churches who have abused their positions and done harm. That is why we look to our leaders to be modeling Jesus, preferring others through love, service and sacrifice. It's also hugely important that we deal with serious issues and that is why we as a church have safeguarding policies in place. But we are also told to bless those who are against us, to pray for them and to overcome evil with good. We ensure the safety of others by having consequences to wrong actions, but this is not the same as seeking retribution. Verse 18, live at peace. Verse 19, do not take revenge. Revenge is only for God. What we can do is encourage each other to do good, as it says in Hebrews 10, 24. And let us consider how we may spur each other on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. This is where forgiveness comes in. In preferring others, we must forgive as we have been forgiven. If his grace is sufficient for us, it's sufficient for them too. Forgiveness for some can be really hard, especially when we have been hurt by people that we love or people that we think should really know better. But putting others above ourselves means letting go of pride and hurt and putting on love above all else. As it says in Colossians 3, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. When Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you, in John 13, he goes on to say in the next verse, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Our love for one another marks us out as followers of Jesus. This outrageous love reveals the kingdom. And uh, 
I mean, Lindsay didn't know what I was going to speak on today, but she was standing there talking about the, uh, the Love Falkirk stuff, and I was just like, yes, this is exactly it. If we love each other, that, like she said, the, the feet of Jesus, that shows to people outside our community, but we have to start in our community. So, when people on the outside look at us, they should think, wow, look at how they love each other. We want to be countercultural. We want to be set apart from the world, to be a community that celebrates diversity and honoring the individual as God created them, but living in peace together and spurring each other on to love God and do good things. When the kingdom of God is near, People resist broken relationships, unforgiveness, selfish ambition, and thinking of only themselves. We can bring the kingdom by loving one another, just as Christ loves us. God first, then others.